This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did to create this ad. To learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai. What you're about to experience is one man's quest to see beyond the tumultuous period we're in and to envision what lies just beyond our grasp, yet well within our reach. Welcome to Larry Rifkin's America Trends, where the future has arrived, and it's just in time. Welcome back to America Trends. I'm Larry Rifkin. As one who follows these things, the Food, Inc. documentary book project, that combination back in 2008, was both acclaimed and impactful. It posed hard questions about how we grow our foods and what impacts this food industry has on our health. Now there's Food, Inc. too which picks up the story. Are we growing foods more sustainably? Are we eating better? How, as a nation, are we advancing in this vitally important realm? Food Inc. 2 and its findings just ahead here on America Trends. With us on America Trends is Carl Weber, and he has edited the Food Inc. 2 book, Inside the Quest for a Better Future for Food. And if you go back to 2008, there was the award-winning documentary Food, Inc., and that really did change a lot of perceptions of what we eat. And it was a fascinating look at the process. For some, it was very disturbing, Carl. You did the book that was a companion to Food, Inc. Now we have Food, Inc., too. Why do we need a second version? Larry, thanks very much for having me on your program. Well, the reason for the new book, again, is a companion to a film, which is the sequel to Food, Inc., Food, Inc. 2, which will be coming out in the uh, spring of 2024. The story behind the new film, uh, Robbie Kenner and Melissa Robledo, who are the directors of the new film, Robbie also directed the first film, and Melissa was a producer on it, that they never intended to do a sequel, even though, as you say, Food, Inc. 1 was a pretty influential film. It did a lot to educate Americans about the problems with our food system, and it helped to feed what has become a growing movement to find ways to reform the food system. 
And I think, uh, you know, Robbie felt, well, my work is done on that subject. But the arrival of the COVID-19 pandemic in 2020 was the trigger that motivated Robbie and, and his partner, Melissa, to take a second look at our food system. Because as you recall, when, when uh, COVID-19 hit, our national food system was revealed as much more fragile than many of us realized because of things like centralization. Mm. Uh, we had shortages of all kinds of foods. People suddenly realized that the people who brought us our food, who harvested the food, who worked in food processing plants, who were responsible for delivering food to our grocery stores and other outlets, all of these people became essential workers. And suddenly uh, it was very hard to keep them on the job because of the dangers of COVID. Americans by the million began to realize that the ability to get access to healthy food in a, in a sustainable way uh, was, uh, was much more at risk than we had realized. Uh, Michael Pollan and Eric Schlosser, uh, who were contributors to both the film and to the first book, uh, wrote very provocative pieces about the problems with our food system that COVID-19 had newly revealed. And so Robbie and Melissa said, you know, it's time to update the story. A lot has changed in our food system, and yet many of the problems uh, still exist. New solutions are being worked on. Let's tell that story. And that's what the new movie does, and that's what our new book tries to uh, accomplish. Now, I will say this. As somebody who's worked in public television for many years, I know that documentaries at times, like Ken Burns' work and many others, uh, mm -hmm. do have impact. But it is rare for a film and mm -hmm. a book companion to really have the attention that this one got uh, back in 2007, 2008. I've got to say, it was pretty remarkable. So I'm hoping that Food, Inc. 2 will get similar attention because, yes, COVID-19 is a good part of this book, I will say, and it does tell us that not only do we have a broken system in many ways, but that our industrial food chain, as you point out, is linked precisely to the type of chronic diseases that render us more vulnerable to things like COVID-19. Exactly. And uh, I, I certainly share your wish that uh, this book will help to educate, inform, and also, in some cases, alarm people about the need for change. Uh, a lot has happened since 2008, 2009. Uh, there are, have been movements toward uh, organic food, for example, uh, toward uh, remedying the problem of food deserts in our inner cities. There's a, a greater awareness of the need for fairness in how we uh, treat the people who bring us our food. So all these uh, changes have uh, begun to make a difference. But so much more needs to be done, and that's exactly the cause that this uh, new movie and the new book are designed to s support. Well, let's look back. I mean, the fact of the matter is that a lot of this goes back to Ronald Reagan's administration, where he propelled a wave of mergers and acquisitions in the food industry, and mm -hmm. the effects are still being felt today. Now, there was this notion, and I know you deal with it in the book, Carl, mm -hmm. that, mm -hmm. uh, well, this is for the better good, because now we can feed more people more cheaply. And it is true but a lot of the food that we're getting is not of the highest quality. I mean, let's be very honest about this. And many of the conditions in our slaughterhouses and in our dairy farming and such are pretty deplorable. 
you know, one of the uh, buzzwords of the environmental movement has been uh, this issue of the of the real cost of things that we produce through industrial means, and the fact that those costs are not being borne by the companies that uh, manage those processes, but in fact are being uh, swept off onto taxpayers and to local communities. And nowhere is that more true than in the food industry. So you have industrial production of cattle and and other foods. Uh, causing uh, tremendous amounts of, uh, of environmental damage and pollution, which in turn leads to health problems for millions of people living in those communities. And uh, those health problems have to be paid for by someone. And, of course, uh, our health system, well, that's, a, that's another whole area <laughs> badly in need of reform. But individual families are paying the price, uh, as well as our, our national health care system. Uh, in, in addition, the, the kinds of unhealthy foods that are getting subsidized by the uh, agriculture department and by the federal government, those, those unhealthy foods tend to produce the kinds of health problems that Americans suffer in greater numbers than people uh, in other countries, other advanced countries in the world. I'm talking about things like uh, diabetes, obesity, health disease, other related illnesses that are exacerbated by the unhealthy foods that we eat. And the book tries to delve into the way this interlocking network of systems of uh, how food is produced, how it's processed, how it's distributed, how it's supported by governmental programs, and how big corporations have developed this system of interlocking uh, forces, all of which limit the choices that Americans have in terms of the food that we eat. And yes, it produces more food more cheaply than ever before, but we end up paying the price in the long run through environmental damage, through harm to our health, and mm. also through the suffering of the people who work in the system who are not treated uh, as fairly as they need to be. And I think that point that you made about the government, where people might scratch their head and say, wait a minute, why does this cost the government? It's because a lot of people end up needing health care services because mm -hmm. they're eating a lot of this processed food or right. food that is uh, buoyed by antibiotics, right. the whole range of things right. that right. industrial farming does mean ultimately that none of us really thinks about. Because virtually right. everything on our grocery store shelves, other than some of those things that are farmer fresh, that are made locally, are really part of this industrial food chain that was buckling so heavily under the weight of COVID-19. Right, very true. One of the good things that has been happening in American uh, ways of eating in recent years, and again, I think Food Inc. 1 uh, helped to capture and perhaps support this movement, is a movement by many people toward healthier eating, the whole fast food uh, industry, which has played such a huge role in influencing the way Americans eat, um, has been countered by what some are calling a, a slow food movement, which encourages people to cook at home, to get fresh fruits and vegetables when, when they're available in a local store, and prepare them, you know, the way their grandparents once did, so that uh, rather than eating ultra-processed foods, which are uh, which have been shown to be unhealthy for humans, we're creating foods that our bodies evolutionarily were designed 
to uh, to absorb and use in a, in a healthy way. So there has been a growing awareness, I think, on the part of many people about uh, what healthy eating really looks like. But unfortunately, the larger systems have not yet made the shift to encourage that as the normal way of eating. And for example, we have a chapter in our book by Senator Cory Booker, who's part of that agriculture committee in, in the U.S. Uh, Congress. And he writes about the fact that the kinds of subsidies that the federal government gives to support agriculture at this point are badly dysfunctional. They're influenced, uh, as usual, by the biggest corporations, uh, which means that the kinds of farm produce that gets subsidized by the federal government are things like corn and soybeans and wheat. Not bad products in themselves, but they become the fodder for the kind of ultra-processed versions of foods that you find in the grocery stores and in the, in the freezers, uh, in the supermarkets, uh, which take what normally should be healthy foods and turn them into sweetened, salted, uh, <laughs> craveable, uh, and addictive foods that are bad for our uh, in- internal systems, whereas fresh fruits and vegetables get little or no support from the federal government. So our farmers who are struggling actually are incentivized to become producers of the the giant crops that go into the ultra-processed foods as opposed to the the healthy foods that you get at a farmer's market or in the produce section of your supermarket. And Cory Booker in his chapter talks about what a struggle it is for him and fellow members of Congress who understand the problem to get the system to change. They're working on it, but like anything else in Congress, it's, it's very tough these days. Well, I just spoke with a regenerative uh, farmer, somebody mm-hmm. who said that we might have 80 more turns of the soil left in many places mm. because of what we're doing environmentally. I'd love uh, for your take on that and the take on the fact that uh, the climate crisis that we're in mm. the midst of, the impact that that has, will that force more small farmers as if we have enough now, which we don't because mm. they have in many ways been replaced by these industrial farming uh, right. processes. So right. tell me what the impact of climate change is as you see it. My understanding, and I have to say I'm a, I'm a book editor. I have one of the greatest jobs in the world because as uh, <laughs> someone who's <laughs> – I've been in publishing now for several decades and get to work with some of the most brilliant authors and other people in the world on sharing their stories in in books like Food Inc. too. So I get to speak with the leading experts and learn from them without being an expert myself. So with that caveat, I would say that what what I'm hearing them say is that certainly the, the climate crisis is driven in part by the problems with our agricultural system, and it does indeed worsen those problems. So pushing back against climate change and finding ways to do everything that we do more sustainably is so essential, and it's got to happen fast because we're running out of time. As you say, you, you know, you mentioned the, the idea of 80 turns in the soil. We know that the degree to which global warming is happening, it, it's happening even faster than the experts feared, you know, over the last several years. So the efforts that we're making to alleviate climate change, they're in the right direction, but they need to be 
tremendously accelerated. And one fascinating example of some of the kinds of things that we can do that will make a difference comes from one of the chapters in our book by a scientist I had never heard of before, but who I've discovered is one of the more important thinkers in our world today. His name is Carlos Montero, and he is mm-hmm. a, an MD and a PhD from Brazil, of all places. And, you know, when I'm thinking about countries that are leading the way in terms of sustainability and healthy eating, Brazil would not be the first country that would come to mind. But Carlos Montero, it turns out, was one of the leading thinkers who first discovered and developed the concept of what is called ultra-processed foods. He developed a definition for these foods, which uh, take what are uh, natural and healthy products, whether they be soybeans or corn or wheat, and however then subject them to industrial processes and techniques using chemicals and methodologies that you would never find in a home kitchen and turn them into foods that are uh, addictive and unhealthy. Montero has done with his insights, he's of course written a number of scientific studies that have been widely circulated in the scientific community and have had a big impact at places like the World Health Organization of the United Nations. But in his home country of Brazil, he has managed to get his insights into ultra-processed foods and the dangers that they pose written into the government policies toward food. So that, for example, in Brazil, which had gone very far down the road that the United States has taken toward allowing young people to fill up their diets with unhealthy calories. Brazil was, had gone very far down that same road like many other developed countries. They are now working hard to reverse those problems. So, for example, one part of the government policy, thanks to the influence of Carlos Montero, is that there's a rule that the 45 million school kids in Brazil who get fed from, by, from the government food programs, at least one-third of their food must be purchased from one of the five million smallholder farms in Brazil. Mm. So there's a policy which is going to give the kids access to healthier food while also supporting small farmers, small food companies, which are practicing age-old healthy techniques for creating food, unlike the unhealthy techniques that are followed by the multinational giant corporations that unfortunately too many of us here rely on for food. So there's an example of the kind of policy that is going to help the environment, help rural farmers, and also make healthier food available to kids growing up today who will develop a taste for good foods which will serve them well when they are raising families of their own. But we've gone down this road of industrializing Mm -hmm. our food chain so dramatically Is there an easy turning back? What about the impact of big food? Because we talk Mm -hmm. about big oil, we talk about big pharma. Rarely do you hear people (laughs) railing against big food, and yet it has such a material impact on our health, our well-being, our environment, all the methane. Uh, We know that in the recent environmental conference that was held, I think, in Abu Dhabi, they were talking Mm -hmm. about methane as being more Mm -hmm. significant in its impact than even CO2. So the question is, are we too far gone (laughs) to really go back to some of these simpler, more natural processes of the past? 
I'm an optimist. I don't want to believe that that's the case. I don't want to believe that there, I don't, that there's no room for hope for our children and grandchildren. And I do think that when it comes to food, there are things that we as individuals and as consumers can do. There are alternatives available, and in fact, an increasing number of alternatives available that we can, through our purchasing power, encourage. Uh, so that, for example, uh, there are growing numbers of farmers markets in communities around the country, supporting those local producers and the healthy foods that they create is one thing that we can all do. Of course, we can get in touch with our congressmen and say, please change the nature of the farm bill, which Congress passes every two years and which provides, you know, billions in subsidies to farmers, but also sets policies for things like uh, school lunches and for the uh, women and infant and children nutrition program. Those policies, if they get adjusted, will have an enormous impact on the kind of food uh, that gets produced and eaten in this country. And in addition, we need also as Americans to, uh, one of the things that, that is a barrier is we need to get used to the idea of paying a little bit more for the food that we purchase. Historically, we know that you know, in generations past, people spent a large portion of their income on uh, just getting putting food on the table. 40 or 50% uh, was not unusual going back 100 years. Today, food has become so cheap for us in America, largely through government subsidies and through the industrial process, that many of us spend 10 or 15% of our income on food. Well, the idea that we might have to spend a little bit more in order to support a small local farming community as opposed to buying from one of the giant corporations. That's something that we as Americans, I think, are going to need to embrace, much as we need to embrace sustainable practices when it comes to energy use. It will cost us a little more, but I think in the long run, we're going to end up with healthier lives and a, a sustainable planet. And that's certainly something that our children and grandchildren are going to appreciate more than, uh, than yet another Happy Meal from McDonald's. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, that is one thing. You're right about both of those things in terms of mm -hmm. energy and food. The problem mm -hmm. is the American public really bases a lot of its political decision-making on these kinds of political traps, as mm -hmm. one of my guests once called them, where yeah. we want to do the right thing, but mm -hmm. we don't want to sacrifice to do it. Food, yeah. Inc. 2, Inside the Quest for a Better Future for Food, Back for Seconds, edited mm -hmm. again by Carl Weber. Carl, in the book, Mm -hmm. You talk about a couple things that are quite interesting to me. The new food, the concept mm -hmm. of new food, cell-based yeah. regenerative food, where yeah. if you like to eat meat but you don't like what happens in slaughterhouses, this mm -hmm. may be the thing for you. Is this really on the horizon? And explain what it is. Well, it's really interesting, and this is one of the things that was new to me when I started editing these chapters and talking with the experts uh, that we recruited from around the country uh, to contribute to the book. I knew very little about non-meat alternatives and also the, the more sustainable ways of getting access to meat. And like uh, Michael Pollan, uh, both in the, in the film and in his writing, uh, you know, he's one of the more beloved food authors in our country, and he, he makes no bones about the fact that he loves a good hamburger, and uh, so do I. And yet, at the same time, we do know that meat production is one of the big problems uh, that we're creating for our environment. The 
uh, what they call the CAFOs, the concentrated food production facilities, uh, where hundreds of thousands of cattle are kept in basically very inhumane and unhygienic conditions, producing tremendous amounts of waste that pollutes uh, the water and the air in the in the neighboring communities. These CAFOs uh, are a, a huge part of our, our climate problem, as well as other environmental problems. So the reliance on industrial meat is one of the big problems that we asked our authors to uh, to address. And uh, to me, one of the fascinating chapters in the in the new Food Inc. Two book is written by uh, a gal who I did not know before. Christiana Musk is her name, and if uh, that last name sounds familiar, yes, it turns out she is the sister of the famous Elon Musk, <laughs> uh, and which made me uh, Elon Musk's reputation is uh, is is mixed to say the least. But I found Christiana to be a fascinating. And, uh, and quite remarkable woman, uh, has taken a very different path than her brother. She's the co-founder of an organization called the, the Flourish Trust, which is a fund supporting various kinds of environmental programs. And she took it upon herself to turn herself into an expert on four different ways in which meat producers are trying to change the way meat is created. Uh, realizing that Americans and actually countless people around the globe are not going to give up on meat anytime soon. These uh, people, uh, business people, scientists, farmers, people from various walks of life are exploring four different ways to make meat more health-friendly and more environmentally friendly. And they range from the, the very commonsensical to the science fiction variety. And uh, the, these four ways include raising cattle that are in, in ways that are more humane and sustainable. They include ways of being more efficient and less wasteful. They also include uh, plant-based substitutes for meat so that many of your listeners may have tried one of the Impossible Burgers, mm -hmm. which uh, are uh, quite tasty, much better than the, the old veggie burgers that uh, many of us tried and, and, and found wanting. And Christiana Musk also talks about, in her chapter, visiting and, and tasting uh, meat that is actually grown on a cellular level in labs, in vats, uh, with no animal involved. So uh, there are companies that are now developing ways to create a piece of steak without a cow being involved or a, or a chicken breast without raising a chicken. Instead, they simply use cells taken from these animals and make them the start of a, of, of a, of a lab-based process in which over time in vats they grow the equivalent of beef, chicken, or any other kind of meat. And uh, I understand from Christiana's experience, as well as the testimony of people like Michael Pollan, who has shown uh, trying this in, in the film, that the results are surprisingly good, that the taste, the texture, yes. uh, the, the mouthfeel are all extremely comfortable and, and tasty. And uh, right now, these products, I gather, are quite expensive to create. So right, you wouldn't be able to go to the store and buy them for a price comparable to what you pay for natural meat. But uh, as the demand grows and as the processes are refined, the hope is that time may come when we will be able to buy and enjoy meat and meat-like products 
that are every bit as enjoyable as the ones that we eat today without harming millions of animals and without harming the environment the way we do. It'll be very interesting to see the consumer pickup on those products <laughs> as they do become yes, much mm -hmm. more available to us. Let me ask you about protein because mm -hmm. chicken, as mm -hmm. was pointed out in one of the chapters, certainly mm -hmm. has eclipsed beef mm -hmm. as mm -hmm. uh, one of those sources of protein. What about fish in all of this as well? Well, fish is another one of those foods that we are, have not been treating with the respect it deserves and which we definitely need to do more with. And uh, I was fascinated to discover, uh, again, a couple of authors in our book strike the average person as unlikely uh, sources of expertise. We have a chapter by uh, David E. Kelly and Andrew Zimmern. Many of your listeners will know Andrew Zimmern from his uh, TV shows. Uh, he's very famous for uh, uh, Bizarre Foods, where he will, you know, he, in, in that program, he'll eat anything mm -hmm. from uh, bugs to reptiles and, uh, and lives to tell the tale. David E. Kelly, it turns out, is a well-known TV producer, so he's a behind-the-scenes expert, best known for programs like Boston Legal and Alley and Deal. But it turns out that David E. Kelly is also the owner of Riverance, which is uh, one of the leading producers of farmed trout, in fact, he, he and his company manage 20 trout farms in Washington State and Idaho, which are producing trout in sustainable ways that are good for the environment and which do not lead to overfishing, which is one of the big problems that fishing operations around the world are suffering as the billions of people around the world continue to demand fish, and fish is one of the you know, most loved uh, foods. There are many, many places where the supplies of fish are, are running short. So fish farming, aquaculture in one form or another is definitely going to need to be on our radar for the future. And one of the fascinating scenes in Food Inc. too actually shows places where uh, kelp and other forms of seaweed are being uh, farmed in, in farms offshore, you know, nearby local fishing communities, and some fishermen are actually turning to aquaculture growing things like kelp, and then local restaurateurs are creating gourmet dishes that use uh, the, the kelp as, as a vegetable or a salad ingredient. So the oceans are going to play an important role in feeding the billions of people uh, living on our planet today and the billions more who are coming. And these experiments with new ways of of creating fish and farming the oceans are going to play a role in doing that sustainably and healthily. Now, let me ask you this. It was really interesting that you got into the fact that Google, <laughs> Google <laughs> is mm -hmm. involved in a food at work program. Mm -hmm. They recognizing the need for health and yeah. good benefit yeah. from nutrition. Why would a Google get involved in this? Well, yeah, that, that was another fascinating thing for me to, uh, to learn about. I mean, Google is, is a company that, as we know, is dedicated to innovation of all kinds, you know, whether it's on the front of uh, space exploration, artificial intelligence, you name it. And um, uh, uh, one of the authors in our book is a man named uh, Michael Bacher, who Google recruited from the hotel industry, where he had been in charge of programs that fed thousands of people 
in uh, in hotels around the world. And they brought him in to manage their food processes because they have actually a couple of hundred thousand employees around the world. And in addition, they have relationships with many other many of the biggest corporations in the world that use Google for consulting services on any number of subjects. And so the people at Google said, uh, you know, we're, uh, we and our, our employees are consuming vast amounts of food, and we know that the way people eat, including our employees, is not necessarily the healthiest for them, which is not sustainable for us as employers in the long run. We operate successfully when we have uh, healthy employees who come to work feeling full of energy, feeling creative, and who have long, healthy, sustainable lifestyles. And the corporations that we work with also want that for their people. Can we change the cafeterias and the restaurants and the foods that we serve to our employees in such a way that we'll be helping them to live healthier lives? So they brought in Michael Bakker, and he has dedicated himself to what he calls food shops that is, programs that are going to make a difference in the way the people at Google and also the companies that Google works with uh, will eat better. For example, uh, running training programs to help people learn about how to produce and enjoy uh, more uh, sustainable and, and healthier foods and to cut down on waste. So it's, it's a matter also of saving money and becoming more efficient for the business. So I think it's it's a fascinating story of how a huge corporation that you don't think of as being food-related, nonetheless is recognizing the central role that food plays in everybody's life and saying, you know, we need to do this better. If we, can, if we all can eat better, we will be healthier, more productive, and happier in the long run. Google is at the forefront of making that kind of change, and I think a lot of other corporations are beginning to think in similar ways. Well, that's why we do have a food ink, too, uh, because there is a lot that has changed and evolved since 2008 when the uh, book and the documentary came out. We're looking forward to both the book and the documentary in this second phase uh, coming as well. And the last chapter, Danielle Nirenberg talks about five necessary components to help us save our food system. I hope, of course, that the documentary will cover these, but give us the most important material in that chapter. Well, yeah, Daniel Nierberg is, uh, you know, another one of the brilliant experts that I've got a chance to, to get to know a bit. She was co-founder of, of, of the Food Tank, which is a nonprofit organization dedicated to uh, generating and spreading some of the most innovative thinking about food. And we asked her to write a chapter of advice for our readers about ways that they can contribute to a better food system. And she talks about quite a few things that are important related to the decisions that we make as individuals in terms of the food that we feed our families, the choices that we make when we go out shopping for food. And one of the topics that she also mentions, which you and I haven't had a chance to touch on, but which I, I think I, I want to at least bring up, is the need to make sure that our food is being produced by people who are being rewarded and treated fairly. And yeah. so uh, one, of the, one of the important themes that she mentions is uh, choosing food suppliers that you know are uh, treating their employees well. We've all learned about the plight of the people picking the foods, many of them uh, Latino or Hispanic, who, some of whom are in the United States in, on an, uh, in an undocumented 
capacity, which means that they are then subject to being mistreated by uh, employers who uh, often will withhold uh, fair wages, uh, force them to work in unfair conditions. Thankfully, there are organizations like uh, the Coalition of Imokali Workers from Florida who are working hard to get big companies to clean up their act. Uh, so that the Coalition of Imokali Workers, for example, who are also in our book, have gotten companies like uh, Walmart and McDonald's to agree to a code of ethics uh, which will govern the suppliers that they buy their tomatoes from, for example, so that people will no longer be subject to exploitation just because they happen to be working on the farm. So uh, Danielle Nirenberg's uh, section of the book, Offering Advice for What We Can Do to Create a Better Food System, covers topics like that as well. And you even deal with restaurants and the sub-minimum mm -hmm. wage and tipping. Right. There is That's so right. much in this book, so many great contributors, and, of course, you'll need to get the book. But we talked to the editor today, Carl Weber, Food, Inc. 2, Inside the Quest for a Better Future for Food. I thank you so much for being with us today here on America Trends, Carl. Thank you again. Larry, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows granger has got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did to create this ad. To learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai.